to episode two of the Talking Acoustics podcast. Talking Acoustics looks into the art and science of acoustics as I catch up with some of the people who spend their lives working in this field. I'm Matthew Watley. I work for Marshall Day Acoustics in Sydney, Australia, and I'm interested in anything to do with acoustics. In this episode, we have Gillian Lee, who works for Marshall Day in Melbourne. Jill is a musician, producer, and acoustic consultant with a passion for the acoustics of recording studios, and for the preservation of the modern live music scene in Melbourne. Her work on both sides of live music and studio venues, both as a performer and acoustic consultant, has given her some interesting insights into what makes these spaces work. First up, acoustics, acoustic engineering. A lot of people don't even know what that is. How do you explain it to people when you... Um, I have to explain it at a party. <laughs> I try and keep it short. <laughs> I generally say uh, it's engineering, um, everything to do with noise in in all kind of forms and leaving it there. And then if I get pressed, <laughs> I start talking about the types of projects that we might be involved in. So I try and explain it um, in terms of I, I always go to concert halls and highway noise barriers are my two examples of <laughs> projects that we work on. So I just let people know that we're involved in, I suppose, determining the design of those things. Yep. That seems to be sufficient. <laughs> At bay. Yeah. <laughs> so acoustics is not, given that most people don't know what it is, yep. um, most kids are in school age definitely don't know what it is yeah how did you get from someone in high school to someone that works as a an acoustician yeah I I didn't know about the job at all until I was at university and when I was at school um I always had a pretty keen interest in music I played music since I was five and by the end of high school I was pretty certain that I wanted to do something music related and in particular, I started towards the end of high school. I'd worked in radio and I wanted to do something more technologically involved with music as opposed to performance. Um, I didn't really see my career as a musician panning out too <laughs> successfully. Um, so, and I, I kind of got interested in, in recording and thought that would be um, a fun thing to do. So, I did a, an audio engineering degree at university and through that uh, we did some acoustic theory and I um, the more I read the more I was sort of intrigued by acoustics and what it was all about and it sounded like a really good fit for me because I've always kind of been interested in either music things or science things and so this is sort of a good marriage of those two things yeah so you play piano yeah yep yep so does is that so that sort of musical connection brought you into sort of recording engineering and then into acoustics yeah yep. yeah i think so it's sort of just a gradual narrowing of fields <laughs> do you I think suppose. you still do you think this you still how do you, how do you think the musical interest that you have affects what you do now um it gives me well a it gives me insight into what it's like to perform in some of the spaces that we design which I think is important and um, I've always really liked hanging out with other musicians so I feel like 
having that background makes it easy to relate to clients who are also musicians and who don't have um, much experience working in acoustics but might have quite a bit of music experience. Um, those clients I find particularly easy to relate to. Um, what else? I think it does still give me, because I've got that passion for music, I do get excited about projects where that's a key key part of the project as well, yeah. even if it's things like live music venues. Like I've got, a, I suppose, a keener interest in making sure that they sound good and that they're, you know, promoting music and, and doing those sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. So you... Do a bit of still do a bit of work as a recording engineer on the side. A little bit. It's it's relatively sporadic at the moment. Yep. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so you've so you you're someone who's worked um, in studios from the recording engineer side, and you've also worked on the design side. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've worked, I imagine, in sort of some home or project studios, yep. and all the way to. Did you do some work in real world? No, not no. I wish. That'd be great. No, there was a, um, a, t- a different residential studio. It was called Leaders Farm at the yep. time, but it doesn't exist anymore, um, unfortunately. But, so you've uh, worked different ends of the spectrum, though, in terms yeah, of facilities. Yeah, definitely, yep. Um, and what's your take then, having seen both sides, about what makes... Uh, studio really work from an I guess from an acoustics perspective yep um I think ultimately you need you need an acoustic that doesn't interfere with the process of making records um which is a bit of a vague statement but uh it I mean it can probably be accomplished a number of ways there's not one sort of way of doing it but that's the key goal I think um well, for me, I think that's one of the key goals, just to sort of be transparent and allow mm. the facilitation of those records to happen without causing detriment to the recordings in any way. So you want the acoustic to support record making. Um, you don't want it to be a thing that people have to work around. Mm. Oftentimes in studios you'll find, you know, particular rooms won't work well and so they'll avoid using the spaces and it can cause workflow issues and, you know, impact what the mix sounds like, all of those sorts of things. So you just don't want to impact the workflow. If you've got a room that sounds great and people are comfortable working in there, then that's that's a win, I think. Do you think it's... uh I could certainly see from a you know a control room or a mix room perspective that you want something really transparent. What about um, live rooms and recording rooms? Do you want because there are certainly rooms I've been in that are characterful, yep. um, that are certainly aren't neutral or, or transparent. That um, maybe not so much when you're multi-tracking you know, individual parts. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you've got a a band in a in a room together or something, do you do you think there's a when you talk about things being transparent, do you mean characterless? Or? No, no, I sort of just meant that um you're not constantly trying to find ways uh to get around the deficiencies yeah. in the room. So things like there are you can have bad acoustic anomalies like echoes yeah. or you know, ringing or standing waves, those sorts of things that are just going to be annoying in all cases. Like there's, I can't think of a case where you would design a room to have echoes or, you know, (laughs) horrible 
ringing tones at certain frequencies. But but yeah, certainly I think there definitely is scope for rooms with a character. And I think um, having options is a really good thing. Um, so if you've got a couple of different spaces and each one's got its own kind of sonic identity, that can be really helpful in the creative process because mm. then you can you know, make some decisions based on the acoustics of each of those spaces. And definitely people have uh, reverb chambers and um, or, you know, vocal booths that mm. might be really dead for recording yep. um, different sorts of things in. Um, and, yeah, certainly, you know, big live barn kind of rooms can sound great for some applications. Yep. Yeah. And not so good for others. And not so good for others. <laughs> it just depends. That's why like, so having options the, is good. Yeah. Yeah. You've got the freedom of space to have a few yeah, yeah. different sound rooms. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Ultimately, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, there seems to be a big difference in the health of the live music industry when you go from city to city in Australia. Um, certainly you come to Melbourne and it seems to have a really thriving music scene with lots happening all the time, mm -hmm. whereas Sydney has um, certainly declined. It's not what it used to be. Yep. Um, you've worked in the scene as a musician, maybe as a live engineer? Uh, occasionally. Occasionally. <laughs> um, and also on the sort of the, the consultant side for planning assessments and... Uh, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think are the issues that are at play in making a, a scene or a city successful um, with live music and, and what do you think we should do if we want to foster live music? <laughs> I wish I had all the answers. I think, <laughs> I think a lot of it uh, boils down to policy um, and you need a policy that supports uh, music venues and live music venues in a city first and foremost. Um, and that can get tricky with other things like liquor licensing and security issues. Um, but, I mean, in Australia even, they seem to kind of be on a bit of a 20-year cycle because Melbourne has certainly had problems in the past as well mm. where policy changes have seen, you know, venues shut down and, um, and the live music scene takes a hit. But um, it sort of does tend to swing back the other way, I think, as well. Like, after a certain period of you know, all these venues shutting down, I think people get fed up with it and then there's a bit of a momentum to either come up with a different design that fits the current policy um, and does allow music performance somewhere or the policy changes and it sort of fosters that growth of live music again. Um, you do see, I think there's a fair bit of um, moving around in like between cities in Australia. So musicians will tend to go to the city that's got, you know, the booming live scene mm. happening at the moment. Yeah. Um, so certainly sort of snowballs, I guess. Yeah, I think so. Certainly with, um, like, some of the littler and smaller cities, there's a kind of a bit of a ceiling if you're a band or a musician to the level of success that you can get in those cities and eventually you probably have to make the move to Sydney or Melbourne. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think it's largely policy-related. Mm. I think gentrification's obviously had a huge influence on it as well, but... I think there's policy around that <laughs> as well that just comes down to affecting whether music venues are viable or not. Yeah, and you've you've worked with uh, Agent of Change in Victoria, which I don't know if you want to briefly explain <laughs> how that sort of works in theory and, and yeah. whether you think it's working and is something that... 
so other cities should look at? Yeah, the the idea isn't unique to music, but um, it's a planning um, concept where whoever is the agent of change, or the I suppose whoever arrives second to a to a situation, um, bears the responsibility for um, making sure that the status quo isn't. Um, upset or changed in any way. So in the context of music venues, if there is a music venue that's already operating and it's been there for, say, however long, and uh, a residential development um, is proposed next door, um, then the onus is on the developer to pay for any acoustic treatment that's required for the for the people so that they can sleep and that sort of thing, as opposed to the venue, which is how it used to be in Victoria. It used to just be venue pays no matter what mm. um which i feel is slightly unfair <laughs> but we do see that approach in other areas of planning anyway so maybe it's just a fact of you know suburban life that you will eventually have people encroaching on your business and you need to sort of take responsibility for future proofing mm. but in saying that i think it's great that <laughs> we do have the agent of change to protect um live music venues because they're not are often lucrative businesses and what you tend to see um, in most cases is property developer moves in, he's got all the cash, music venue shuts down, pops up somewhere else, hopefully, mm. um, which is a, a bit of a frustrating situation. So mm. uh, the jury's out a little bit on how well Agent of Change has been working just because we haven't seen a lot of the unknowns tested at the tribunal yet so um i don't think there's yet been a case that's been followed through all the way to completion we've certainly had lots of projects where we've designed buildings for next to venues or we've designed uh, treatment for the venue that the developer has paid for those sorts of cases but um we haven't seen you know the reaction of occupants in those buildings to find out whether it it works or not Mm. do do you think there's a cultural difference at play um my perception is that in melbourne people are much more um likely to sort of duck out on a friday night and catch a band and get a dinner and head home whereas in sydney it goes on but it's um maybe people are less in it's less part of their lives it's less part of something they do all the time probably because the scene is not maybe there in the same way that it is here. Yeah. Um, and I wonder whether we sort of, where you have a, have a successful scene like Melbourne, it sort of perpetuates itself. And if you have a somewhere like Sydney where the scene dies back, that you lose a generation of people who live music's not part of their lives. Yeah, I think you do miss out on opportunities. I know from experience that it's very easy to get a gig in Melbourne um, and there are heaps of venues and um, <clears throat> it's quite accessible way out into the suburbs, which I think is potentially a unique thing that some of the, well, definitely the smaller cities don't have. Um, and I think that accessibility is one of the reasons why people might be more inclined to incorporate it in their sort of daily goings because it's, you know, if you're on your way home from work and you want to just stick your head in the local pub that's mm. around the corner from your house, there might be a cool band on. You only have to spend you know, half an hour, an hour in there, and then you can be home in 10 minutes. It doesn't have a huge impact on your night. 
you don't have to, you know, plan a night of, of getting into the CBD to see a, a gig and then coming all the way home. It's quite an easy thing. It seems quite easy to mm. do. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is that I think um, I heard once that Melbourne, <laughs> if you want to market anything to Melbourneites, you just call it typically Melbourne because Melbourne people just like anything Melbourne. <laughs> I think that live music is definitely part of the identity and yeah. and people are, are passionate about it and they, they do sort of fiercely protect um, the underdog, which in a lot of cases turns out to be the music venue who mm. is, you know, being encroached on by the... The big evil residential <laughs> development next door. Well, it's interesting because it probably, when you contrast something like Agent of Change and how Melbourne does it to somewhere like Brisbane where they have um, Fortitude Valley as a music sort of precinct. Yep. Um, and if you want to go and see music, you have to get in your car or get to Fortitude Valley and, yeah, yep. and have a big night out to see music yeah. and then go home. Yep. Um, it probably doesn't lend itself to that same... Um, you know, soft encroachment into people's lives where yeah. they just sort of duck in and see a band on the And I think it definitely normalises it a lot more, having yeah. that, um, I suppose, saturation of music venues in suburbs that aren't particularly, um, you know, they don't seem intimidating. They're not, um, you know, they're not exclusive. There's no one on the door. They're free to get in. It's just your local pub. It's not like a, um, yeah, you don't have to sort of brave the onslaught of somewhere like Fortitude Valley, which, yeah. you know, has all the other things associated with it. Like, yeah. um, lots of people out on the streets and it's very hectic. Yeah. You have to make a full night <laughs> of it. You have to make a full it night of it. It doesn't have to be a big night out. Yeah. Um, I think it, yeah, I think it does sort of make it a little bit more normal and something that is probably accessible to a wider range of people. Hmm. Do you have any advice that you'd give to club owners or people looking to start up a music venue or live <laughs> music events? Yeah, you know? they, um, they typically... Is something that they're not doing that, <laughs> that you just say, I wish well, you knew this thing because that would make your lives easier <laughs> there was i think it's it comes down to planning there was a great example the other day um we were speaking to a particular venue in melbourne who were telling us about how they'd planned for that particular venue and they knew it was going to have a big live room and it was going to be really loud and so the top of their list of things that they were looking for when they were looking for a space for this venue was somewhere in a commercial or an industrial zone it was a long way away from existing residential areas and hopefully near something like you know a train line or public transport mm. so people can get there easily but it's yep. not necessarily in a residential hub so mm -hmm. um they don't have that impact straight away and they they were also trying to future proof the venue um at its inception so they knew that eventually residential encroachment was probably going to happen and so they oriented the building in a way that the openings and the weaker elements were faced towards the industrial zone or towards the railway line. Um, so just those kind of smart planning moves at the yeah. outset has meant that that venue has not encountered, you know, the number of complaints or um, being hassled from council, that kind of thing. Mm. And it's managed really, really well. So when they do have a complaint, it's addressed straight away. Um, 
you know, they're, they're really running it um, in a very sort of positive way. So the community, I think, perceives um, perceives that as a positive and is more likely to be happy with having the venue around rather than yeah. it being yeah. a, a massive nuisance that they want to see shut down. So they were thinking about where they put the where they selected the site and then how they orientated their space, um, sort of from day one. Yeah. Yep. And was that on? A, advice from someone who was in the know or they or um, they were just they they have ven- they have on. other venues so yeah, okay. they've got um they've made the mistakes <laughs> they've got a before. history yeah <laughs> they've probably made the mistakes before yeah. they've, they've you know they've been through the process and i think for some of their other venues they had they've you know they've had issues of complaints and of residential people living nearby that kind of thing so um yeah, third time around they've <laughs> made all the right moves at the start. But they like you look at all of the successful venues around and they all tend to have those similar features of mm. you know, they're they're managed very effectively, their their staff are um really professional and very capable people that if there's a problem they'll, you know, address it very quickly. Yep. They're um yeah, just oriented in a way that doesn't cause nuisance and impact mm. to people living around them. That's certainly something I've taken out of working with music venues is that if you're on good terms with your neighbours and you're communicating with them and when there's a problem you try and sort it out, yeah. those venues go so much yeah. more smoothly than you know the venues that sort of say, mate, it's not my problem and... You know, yeah, absolutely. Take us to court if you want. And, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. no one really wins when you do that. No, no, it's better just to sort it out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, moving now from the sort of the planning and the policy issues around live music venues, mm-hmm. if we go inside the venue and talk about the sort of room acoustics for these spaces, um, uh, acousticians tend to spend a lot of time talking about acoustics for opera houses and concert halls, and there's lots of textbooks. Yeah. written about spaces like that and the acoustics in them. Mm-hmm. Um, but the acoustics for uh, venues for modern or popular music, uh, however you want to define that, um, don't tend to get the same degree of consideration. Mm-hmm. Um, often hear people, not normally acousticians, I would add, uh, that say the room acoustics for these sort of venues should just... They don't matter. You just make the room dead and the sound systems just do all the work, so don't worry about acoustics in them. <laughs> um, what's your take on the acoustics for, you know, sort of modern live music venues? Uh, and what do you think the sort of key design aspects are that need to be incorporated? I think, um, for starters, I think acoustics definitely do matter for <laughs> popular music venues. For the average punter, they might not um, appreciate... Uh, maybe the um, level of treatment that's been incorporated in a room. They might not see if things have been done. But also I think for the people who are working in there, the sound engineer, the band, um, the staff, the bar staff who have to operate, you know, the place, it makes a huge difference. So the band wants somewhere where they can hear themselves play. The sound engineer wants a room that he can control. Bar staff don't want to be deaf at the end of the day. Um... And so I think there's definitely a base level of <laughs> treatment that probably should be incorporated or at least considered yeah. um, in pop music 
uh, places and particularly any, anyone who's been in a big boomy hall with a loud mm. PA knows it's just miserable and um, a fairly horrible experience. Yeah. Um, but I think that um, within that... Uh, within that context, I think there's also kind of scope for um, how the music venues actually shape the music that's being performed in those spaces mm. as well. So it's a, it's a bit of a feedback loop, I think. Like people get used to the kinds of spaces that are around in a particular scene or a particular, you know, music environment and tend to, um, as humans have done for thousands of years, compose music that's appropriate for that venue. So yeah. it, it sort of chases the tail a little bit. So you do want to have venues that sound good, but also I think people will always find a way to compose music that's yeah. suitable for performance in those venues. Um, have you read David Byrne's yeah. book, Yeah, How Music Works? Yeah. Yeah, it talks about that a lot. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really interesting point because, I mean, our job is to make music places spaces sound good and reinforce um music that's being performed but maybe that's a step backwards <laughs> maybe they should be determined by the creators of of the music in the space yeah well if you if you follow the sort of hypothesis that um uh the the space that you make the music in forms what that music's going to come out as that the acousticians that are designing spaces are affecting the music that, yeah. that gets created so yeah that's true yeah um we're sort of part of the part of the creative process on some level yeah um and so the decisions we make about how we formulate those spaces mm -hmm. um you know have a creative flow-on effect yeah um it's just a bit of Wait for yeah. <laughs> think about that next time you're doing one. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there's um like there's obviously a dialogue between um the types of music that are performed in a space and how the acoustic should respond to that. I think so. Ultimately, you're trying to make the space um, supportive of whatever's being performed, whether yeah. it's you know rock covers or gypsy jazz music. Yeah. Yeah. So, am I right in sort of paraphrasing you on the technical <laughs> side that um, you're talking about at the mix desk you want to have that the engineer gets a, a transparent rendition of what's going on that they can mix of a relatively neutral sort of yeah I think representation um, of what the rooms yeah getting? you want you want it to be um, you want to feel like you've got control over the mix I yeah. think in spaces that are too reverberant. Um, Sometimes it can be really difficult to um, to craft something that's, uh, I suppose, easily understood and represents, you know, what would be representative of the band, say, on a recorded format. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it can be really hard to do in big boomy spaces with no mm. absorption inside. So when you're talking about boomy spaces, you're talking about... Rooms with a long sort of reverberation in the low frequencies. Yeah, low frequencies yeah. in particular. So, and that's um, reasonably typical <laughs> in a lot of venues. Yeah. But um, but if you can control that, you you if you can control that low frequency reverberation, you can get yeah. a, get a better 
control over the room. Definitely. Just like, you, you want to be the person um, who's creating the mix, not sort of um, forfeiting to what the room's doing and then yeah. trying to do your best to, you know, saying, well, I, I can't hear anything in the low frequency, so it's all muddy, so I'll just push the vocal up and then hope for the best. Yeah, just turn everything up. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you see any change in the move... Um, probably not in smaller venues so much, but in the sort of the bigger acts moving now to a lot of in-ear monitors. So you've got a sort of a quieter stage and less stage level. Um, do you think that change... Is that changing the way we're designing I think it rooms? should, um, particularly those sort of medium-sized venue, uh, like rock venues, um, I definitely think it should. I've not ever played with inner ears, so I don't know what it's like mm. on stage. Um, but, yeah, certainly if you don't have... I mean, one of the challenges of mixing in a in a live environment in those sort of medium-sized spaces is uh, getting a front-of-house mix that is um, over the top of the fold-back monitors yeah. and, um, and is still balanced and sounds good um can be quite tricky to do particularly um with guitar amps and all sorts of other things on stage so yeah i think it's it definitely takes one of the you know challenges out of the equation you don't have to worry about um having another four sound sources in the room yep. you have to deal with <laughs> yeah. turn everything up so you can get yeah. over the drummer all right um of all the stuff that you've done in your career so far mm -hmm. what's the thing that you're most proud of <laughs> um i hated this question i hated, this one took me the longest amount of time um i think i'm probably most proud of and i, I by no means finished learning but um i'm quite proud of the amount of of things that i have learned over the last sort of 10-ish years since i've been out of university i think um, I remember spending quite a few years at the start of my career being very worried that I wasn't cut out for the job and that I was never <laughs> going to understand anything to a level where I could speak to someone else about it. You didn't want to go to a meeting because you just were afraid of saying Absolutely. something stupid. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's taken ages to build up that sort of semi-level of confidence. Um, but even in saying that, uh, I still recognise that there's you know, a long way to go before I am Yoda. But, um, yeah, I, th I think I'm reasonably proud of that, given that I also work with uh, a large number of very smart people. I think that can be quite intimidating as well, coming from uh, a not-so-technical background, so having, like, a music degree as opposed mm. to an engineering degree. Um, was your degree music... Music technology. Music technology, yeah. Yeah, so essentially a music degree, but instead of having a, an instrument to perform on, uh, we learnt audio engineering, basically. The studio was the instrument. Yeah, studio is the instrument, yeah. <laughs> um, can you tell me about uh, an aha moment that you had in your... <laughs> so many, they happen daily. <laughs> just... One uh -huh. of... <laughs> oh, I get it now. <laughs> One of the big recent ones was actually... Uh, in VR, the, we've been doing a little bit of work um, or just starting to learn about VR because it's starting to become a, a thing in... Virtual um, reality? Yeah, virtual yep. reality. It's starting to become a thing in um, architecture. So mm -hmm. we find that people go to meetings and they put on a VR headset, which sounds very futuristic. And 
one of the things that I had just never made the leap <laughs> was um, I was watching a video of somebody uh, who was who had put on a VR headset and then they were going to make some changes to a model that they were virtually sitting in at the time. So on their VR headset, they could see the changes being implemented around them as they worked on the computer. So I understood that concept and I was like, oh, cool, I'll have a look at this video and see how it works. But what I never realised was that because it's virtual reality, you don't need a real computer, you can have a virtual computer and you can use that computer to make changes to the real model on the real computer. And that kind of blew my mind. Sorry, you've lost me. You... <laughs> so it's a guy, it's the a guy VR with a headset, headset on. Yep. Yep. And from his view, yes. he's sitting in the middle of a model. Yeah. Yep. And he's holding this thing that looks like a giant iPad. Yeah. But it doesn't exist in the real world. He's just on a swivel chair. But... The computer, because the computer exists within the computer, um, has his AutoCAD model on the iPad screen. So how is he controlling it then? Because it all knows where his fingers with are. His and finger which, manipula- yeah, with his finger wow. manipulations. So out. he's making changes to the model on his virtual iPad uh, that is actually updating the model in real time. Wow. That I'm kind of blew me away. I was like, whoa. <laughs> don't even need computers anymore do you think that will um i mean on on the topic of vr and um sort of lends itself then onto oralization where you have a um, um a virtual representation of acoustics in a space mm-hmm. either um marshall day has um uh oralization room mm-hmm. with 12 or 15 speakers that you sit in the chair and put the VR goggles on and it puts you acoustically in the space and you can modify the um, the parameters of the model that's delivering the acoustic rendition to you mm-hmm. or, or there's other systems where you put a headset on, uh, yeah. headphones on. Um, how do you think that will change the way we work and what impact do you think that'll have on the way acousticians design spaces and communicate I'm, design decisions to others and yeah i think it'll um i mean i think the way that technology is going now people uh who are users of um technology and information demand constantly demand higher levels of transparency um from all kinds of companies so take uber as an example um, one of the things that's attractive about that app is that you can see exactly where the car is as it's coming to get you and you, yep. you have that extra bit of information. You don't have to just implicitly trust that a cab will turn up at some point in time. And I think um, one of the key issues that we have in talking to clients is convincing them to do, um, to, I suppose, act on our recommendations Um so that a particular acoustic standard will be achieved. And I think that's only the VR and oralization tools are only going to enhance that, um, our ability to, I suppose, provide some sort of transparent and um, objective um, showing of of those recommendations, if that makes sense. So when we say don't just, you know, don't just, trust is have a listen like you you can you can have a listen for yourself and see if you think this is acceptable or we can 
more effectively demonstrate to you the difference between two concepts and what yeah. that might potentially sound like in the future. So you put more of the control back in the, the end user or the client's hands to make decisions rather than us as, acoustic, as experts saying we think <laughs> the best thing for you is this. Is this, yeah. yeah. I think because... Um, I mean, ultimately what we're recommending, I, I've got reasonable confidence in the things that we recommend. So mm. I would imagine that most people would agree having, you know, the option to look at different choices. But where the choice might be, you know, minuscule, mm. then the client has more responsibility in, in making a choice about, you know, if they're looking at cost versus outcome, they mm. can, they're in a position to say what's acceptable to them yep. and what's not. And yep. then, I mean, they take on that responsibility of design as well at the end of the day it's their money yeah exactly (laughs) yeah it's it's, yeah all well and good for us to design a space how we'd like it yeah uh, unless you're paying for it yeah um, and i mean other things other industries um work like that so you know if you're building a house the architect draws up some plans and is able to show you you know through 3d modeling or what what it's going to look like and what it's going to feel like and do sun plans at different times of the day i think it's kind of an extension of that in a way yeah um so on the we've sort of gone down a bit of this <laughs> vr and oralization path what do you think the future of acoustics looks like um what do you what do you think's changing and what do you think definitely the technology is like? changing um very quickly uh in a lot of different aspects so modeling uh is getting faster and and more more capable um the equipment's getting um, more sophisticated, so sound level meters and even the logging equipment for environmental noise logging, mm. we, we can you know, transmit logging data straight to the cloud now and that's been great. Um, certainly the VR and oralization things, um, those sorts of tools are only going to expand the kind of range of services that we're able to offer. Um, on the the project side of things, it's always changing as well. So there's always different and new, you know, building products and um, different sorts of design features that are going to be incorporated into projects that we need to sort of wrap our heads around. I think there's always there's always going to be a need for acoustic design, um, and that level of understanding and um, insight is always going to be valuable. I think because there's yeah. always going to be a demand for for quiet or for particularly yeah. Um, controlled acoustic spaces. So the tools are changing, but the tools uh, are changing. The fundamental the, the principle expertise behind it, the, the design advice, is still required. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, you know, physics is physics. It's <laughs> not doesn't seem to be changing. We've um, we've talked about what you're most proud of. Mm-hmm. You tell me about a failure. Oh, about a many what, of those. What happened, and <laughs> what did you do, and how that what you'd do differently now and um <coughs> excuse me <coughs> it's not a stalling mechanism <laughs> um yeah i the things that i that immediately spring to mind are stupid mistakes like um dropping equipment and uh, having it break and <laughs> forgetting equipment when i've driven four hours to site and having to do a very early morning bunnings shop to MacGyver some equipment. You don't make those mistakes many times. No. Though, <laughs> Setting equipment up wrong, that's always an yeah, annoying that's one. Yeah, a good one. Yep. Um, I'm trying to think of some substantial errors that I've made. Um, 
I think one of the big ones is um, not asking enough questions and assuming um, mm. assuming things is probably uh, something that I try to do better because sometimes you might assume that something's one way and then three yeah. quarters of the way into the project you suddenly realise that's not the case at all. Yeah. So keeping those communication channels open with the client is really important. Um, and I think probably the bigger uh, failures are probably less to do with technical things like equipment failure and, um, you know, not carrying the one or <laughs> messing up your calculation and more to do with um, personal interaction type things like communication and how you deal with your client. <clears throat> because at the end of the day, if you've got a good relationship with the client, um, that will survive any number of, you know, small, silly mistakes mm. that could happen to anyone. But yep. you need to be good at communicating and you need to be thorough. You have great quality assurance. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All the um, I's dotted and T's crossed, those sorts of things. Um, now, the gender balance in acoustic engineering is changing, um, but women are still outnumbered by men. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any thoughts on how we can address that imbalance and make the career more attractive to young women coming into it? Uh, it's hard. Um, it's hard to know what's what would be an effective strategy to create gender balance um, in industries, but I think visibility is, is one of those things. So I think, um, you know, people, the more that um, I suppose younger girls can see that there are women working in acoustics who are successful and, and doing well and um, uh, could be potential role models, I think the more that would encourage girls to to not be, you know, afraid of um, entering the industry. Mm. I think a lot of it might, the insecurity might come from, um, you know, being outnumbered in the, in the workplace can have um, a whole lot of other social repercussions and you might think that because of um, because of being outnumbered that you might be at a disadvantage had you have chosen a career that would, didn't have such a, a gender gap. Um, I don't I don't personally find that to be the case. Um, I think most workplaces, uh, well, certainly my own workplace, um, I don't feel any disparity um, between how people are treated, which is good. Um, but yeah, I think uh, visibility. I did write something else down here. <laughs> oh, I think um, the more that workplaces can be seen to be encouraging gender balance um, and equal opportunities um, can go a long way as well. I mean, mm -hmm. you want to feel like you're supported by your employer and the, and the industry at large. So it's, it's uh, a good thing and a nice thing, I think, to have the backing of... Um, of your colleagues and of the wider industry as well to have it you know recognized as a as a thing as opposed to something that doesn't exist or something that you know doesn't need to be addressed um, is only going to perpetuate that that gap I suppose yep yeah um, what does the future hold for you in acoustics what is <laughs> what do you still want to achieve in oh. in your career and what you're doing? I'd love to do 
like a big commercial recording studio. <laughs> That'd yeah. be great. I don't know. I don't like my chances given they're um, not particularly, they don't pop up all the time. <laughs> they seem to be shutting down in Australia more than opening up. But Because um, you've done a few like commercial studios yeah. here and you, you worked on ABC's Yeah, ABC's, ABC's studios. studios? That, yeah. that was really, um, that was an excellent project it, and such a great insight into... Um, the design of broadcasting facilities as opposed to recording mm. facilities, which I'm sort of more familiar with. Um, that's just from a, a personal perspective. I'd, I've always loved recording studios and working yep. in them and it would be really fun to be involved in the design of one of those. Yeah. Um, one of those kind of spaces. One of the big budget ones. Yeah, they are <laughs> like particularly <laughs> the not, thing. Not building building many of those anymore. There's not a whole lot of money in the uh, in the scene. No, well, they're they're funny things because I I think they need um, I think those big ones like what what I think some of the studios lack today is the atmosphere that yeah the big old studios had and um real character well, some of them. yeah like yeah. character and I think some of that comes from the history of the place like those studios around the world that have been home to any number of you know famous albums and um incredible recording musicians i think it's also about the people who create those spaces can impart that kind of legendary characteristic in there um and give it that special bit of magic i think it really uh goes a long way to making the space feel kind of magical and special Mm. and inspirational for bands who are wanting to record there you want you want it to have a little bit of you know something exciting yep so what advice do you have any advice for someone starting out in acoustics um wanting to get into it yeah uh i think it's always good to approach companies and try and get work experience with companies and just be as helpful as you can and um, you know, if you've got a, a keen work ethic, I think that's probably the the main <laughs> consideration for someone yep. starting out. You don't have to, no one expects you to know everything um, when you're beginning. Um, but I think as long as you're polite and keen, <laughs> those are the two um, probably best traits to have. Um, I think don't be afraid of being, of getting knockbacks. I certainly had a few knockbacks from you know, different companies when I was first starting out and I think you just keep hunting around till you find a good fit, really. Yeah. <laughs> so one last question. Yeah. Given that you've uh, you've been a musician in some sense, recording engineer, um, you're established in acoustics now, you can sort of... You've probably got a lot of transferable skills. Um, why do you still do acoustics? Why are you still here? Um, <laughs> it's a great fit for me uh, in terms of a job, like a, an everyday pay-the-bills job. It's it's interesting. I really enjoy it. I like the people that I work with. Um, it's challenging. And I think at this stage, I, I'm probably more focused on those sorts of things as opposed to pursuing a career as a, as a musician. It, it's probably never something that I actually, you know, toyed with um as a real possibility mm. uh and i just haven't put in the time it's a typical <laughs> it life work. too I the yeah, life of a, a professional is a musician life. is actually i don't think i have the charisma to, to pull it off yeah i um and I, I think working around those other people who are you know 
um, re really amazing at those jobs, you start to realise, oh, maybe maybe you're not particularly cut out to do that as a as a job. Yep. I yep. like I like being able to play in bands at the moment, but not have it be the thing that puts food on my table and and pay my bills. Um, yeah, I think. Um, and sound engineering too. There were I, the amount of work that I would have to put in to mm. get up to speed with the other people working in the industry is just immense. <laughs> yep. Well, Gillian Lee, thank you for talking to me. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any feedback or comments, you can send me an email at talkingacoustics at gmail.com. For more information on Gillian and her work, you can check out marshalldae.com.